Welcome to Rebel Women, a podcast about history's troublemakers. I'm Esther Freeman. As the sirens wailed, women rose up once more to do their bit. They went to factories producing munitions. They built ships and aeroplanes. In the auxiliary services, they became air raid wardens, fire officers, and drove ambulances, trains, and trams. They worked on the railways, canals, and on buses. They even built Waterloo Bridge. As with World War I, the same anxieties rose up about women in the workplace. Trade unions once again went into opposition, voicing concerns about pushing down men's pay. But wartime needs won. The call went out and women responded in their thousands. By mid-1943, almost 90% of single women and 80% of married women were working in factories, on the land or in the armed forces. Before the war, most women led sheltered lives as wives and mothers. Many were from unhappy homes and marriages. Joining the war effort liberated them, providing a sense of purpose and patriotic duty. It changed them too. It changed the way they dressed, the way they thought, the way they behaved. They were mixing with the opposite sex more, which combined with a feeling that you could die any day, led to a spike in extramarital sex. For some, war provided the best years of their life. But for others, the double burden of domestic chores and work was a huge struggle. Women had carried this double load for many years. The expectation was that women would remain at home and focus on domestic responsibilities. But for some, that wasn't an option. Women who had been widowed, or their husbands could not find work, would be forced into employment. And if you needed to go to work, what did you do with the kids? Childcare options were limited, to say the least. In 1938, there were only 104 day nurseries and 114 nursery schools in the country. Many mothers relied on school as an unofficial babysitting service, with older siblings covering the extra duties. The war brought the problem of how women managed the demands of work and family into sharp focus. Initially, most children from London and the surrounding areas were evacuated to places such as Wales, Norfolk or Cambridgeshire. When the bombing raids did not materialise, many returned home. By January 1940, around half of evacuees were back with their mothers. They had missed them and they were glad to have them home. But also, how did you work with a child hanging around your ankles? Although exempt from conscription, many married women wanted to do their bit. But they couldn't if there was no care services for the children. So the government set up nurseries run by local authorities and funded by the Ministry of Health. Initially, they were inadequate numbers for the level of demand until pressure from a number of women trade unions, pressure groups and local women-led protests. The day nurseries were originally for women working in government factories or contracts, but due to demand, this was swiftly expanded to include anyone engaged in war work. By the end of the war, there were 1,345 wartime nurseries across the country. Apart from long working hours and domestic burdens, the other frequent complaint by women was their pay, which was on average 47% lower than the men they replaced. Unequal pay was not new, but the injustice was felt more sharply as gender division in employment began to blur. The war led to women entering jobs normally reserved for men, 
including the better paid all-male craft roles such as engineering and construction. The attitude of the labour movement leaders was all too familiar. Most unions in the craft sector did not admit women members and certainly weren't agitating for equal pay. Any pay parity during the war happened due to female agitation and without union support. In 1939, the Air Transport Auxiliary ATA, was set up to ferry aircraft from factories to air bases and maintenance units. The 20s and 30s had seen a boom in female aviation, and in January 1940, the women's unit of the ATA was set up by Pauline Gower. As the first eight women were expected into service, outrage ensued. The editor of Airplane magazine said, quote, the menace is the woman who thinks that she ought to be flying in a high-speed bomber when really she has not the intelligence to scrub the floor of a hospital properly, or who wants to nose around as an air raid warden yet can't cook her husband's dinner. These chauvinist attitudes would not slow progress. By the end of the war, there were 166 women in the ATA. They would fly everything from Spitfires to four-engine bombers. 20 women would lose their lives in service, including flying legend Amy Johnson. The growth of the women's unit did not mean that prejudice disappeared. The women-only ferry pool was known as the lesbian pool. There was resistance to allowing the women to wear trousers, even though it was infinitely more practical to do so. Some, like Diana Bonato Walker, would resort to changing into trousers in the cramped cockpit of her Spitfire only to change back into a skirt upon landing. But the most obvious sign of unequal treatment was their pay. Male ferry pilots received £280 per year and £10 per month flying pay. The women were paid £230 and £8 respectively, even though they flew the same aircraft and faced the same dangers. Pauline Garrow approached MP Irene Ward and together they successfully lobbied government to equalise the pay of male and female pilots. In doing so, they made history. It was the first time the government had granted equal pay for men and women in any of its agencies. Engineering also saw huge growth. The Ministry of Labour created training centres which provided an introduction to the engineering process. By 1941, the demand in engineering had grown so much that women were allowed too. It would become a huge source of female employment, including in areas such as aircraft manufacture, light and heavy general engineering, and motor vehicle production. Aircraft manufacturing saw the largest rise in female employment, from 7% in 1935 to 40% in 1944. By 1943, one in three engineers were women. Although many craft unions continued to refuse admittance to them, the largest, the Amalgamated Engineering Union, AEU, changed its policy in 1943. The AEU were also the keenest on ensuring that women be paid the same rate as men. They argued that if the bosses could get away with diluting wages for women, this would drive down the male rate when they returned after the war. They stopped short of lobbying government, however, preferring to incorporate equal pay provision into individual contracts. 
Over in Hillington, Glasgow, women at the Rolls-Royce factory were fed up with being paid a lower rate than unskilled men doing the same work. A court of inquiry recommended a new grading system, which was agreed by the AEU. However, the women believed the new system would still leave 80% of them on the lowest rate, so they went on strike, which was supported by most men in the plants. Eventually, they agreed on a set wage for men and women, depending on the kind of machines they worked on. While these wins were historic, pay parity never reached most low or unskilled workers, especially those in traditional women's roles such as textiles. And even those small wins were short-lived. Amongst the optimism of the post-war period, things still looked bleak for a lot of women. More on this after the break. Do you enjoy stories of women who broke the rules and changed the way our society thinks and acts? Well, there are loads more at eastlondonwomen.org.uk. There is also a walking tour app where you can go on self-guided tours around local heritage landmarks and resources for the younger members of your family to learn about this fascinating but largely untold history. Find all that and more at eastlondonwomen.org.uk. I'm Esther Freeman, this is Rebel Women. We're back with part two, post-war gloom. After the war, patriarchal attitudes in both aviation and engineering held firm. Any progress made was soon undone. Women continued to agitate, however, including through the Six Point Group set up in 1921 by Lady Rhonda. The organization took its name from the six areas of reform for women, legislation on child assault, legislation for the widowed mother, legislation from the unmarried mother and her child, equal rights of guardianship for married parents, equal opportunities for men and women in the civil service, and equal pay for teachers. The group included former militant suffragettes, as well as younger members like the writers Winifred Holtby and Vera Britton. Although membership was small, the Six Point Group wielded considerable political influence in the interwar years and during World War II. Much of its work was done through its journal, Time and Tide. It also made deputations to government ministers, organised public rallies and wrote letters to newspapers. They sat on the Equal Pay Campaign Committee, which was set up in 1943 and chaired by MP Mavis Tate. Meanwhile, in 1944, the subject of equal pay was discussed at the Trade Unions Congress at Blackpool. A resolution raised by the Kettering Tailors and Garment Workers Union demanded equal pay for equal work. They called for the principle to be applied to all government establishments and contracts. Due to the increasing pressure, in 1944, the government established a Royal Commission on Equal Pay. Two years later, the Commission tentatively concluded that women in teaching and certain grades of the civil service might benefit from equal pay. But even these limited proposals were rejected as inflammatory by the government. There's a general consensus that World War II provided a unique and liberating opportunity for women as they proved themselves capable of men's work. But the reality for many was that the hours were long they struggled to manage continuing domestic demands and pay remained low. As men returned from war, women were displaced from their jobs. 
Some were forced out through the marriage bar, which prevented married women from working in certain roles. For others, it was social pressure and ideologies that mothers who worked psychologically damaged their children. Others were simply exhausted. They had exploded the myth of women's worth. They had talked down air crews, broken codes, driven 10-ton trucks and saved lives. No concessions was ever made for the fact that after a 10-hour day they still had to shop, clean and feed their family on rations. They were worn out. They were expected to return to home and in many cases they were happy to do so. By the end of the war, the campaign for equal pay went off the boil. Warfare had failed to crush deeply ingrained prejudices about women's role in society. The consensus remained that women's destiny was marriage and motherhood, blocking the road to gender equality. In 1945, Labour won the general election, promising a new post-war era of reform. But neither the Labour Party nor the trade union movement had shaken their patriarchal attitudes. The welfare state, arguably Labour's finest achievement, was based upon the idea that society revolved around family units, with a male breadwinner at the helm. The role of married women in social production was secondary to their domestic responsibilities. Beveridge expressed this exactly in his famous report of 1942. Quote, The attitude of the housewife to gainful employment outside the home should not be the same as that of the single woman. She has other duties. Taken as a whole, the plan for social security puts a premium on marriage instead of penalising it. In the next 30 years, housewives as mothers have vital work to do in ensuring the adequate continuation of the British race and of British ideals in the world. By the late 40s, the post-war reconstruction effort demanded a need for an expanded labour force, pushing the government into moderating their position. They did so with some caution. Jobs were strictly segregated by gender. Routine, repetitive work was categorised as for women with lower women's wages. The period also saw huge recruitment of migrant workers, which initially focused on men, but women later followed. This included West Indian nurses who helped power the newly formed NHS. Other migrant women, despite being educated in English and holding professional qualifications, found only low-paid and unskilled jobs were open to them. Women were still considered to be secondary workers, their wages not central to family income. Women's wages were for extras, such as holidays or new consumer durables. Equal pay was not part of the discussion. In 1950, Irene Ward made a speech in the House of Commons complaining of, quote, promises without performance. She argued that despite the Royal Commission and pledges of equal pay in the policy programmes of all three parties, Quote, time has passed, the pledges have not been redeemed, and we are becoming extremely impatient. I am inclined to think that on the whole, we have been too starry-eyed about the promises of all the parties. Nevertheless, the Equal Pay Committee campaign persisted. In 1955, after mass public campaigning, including demonstrations and petitions, equal pay was agreed in the non-industrial civil service and teaching. However, a phased introduction meant that many would wait until 1961 to benefit. The rest of the decade looked bleak for women, with nothing done to apply equal pay to private sector workers. 
Both government and trade unions continued arguing that the economy would collapse if they gave women equal pay. The issue may have been forgotten about altogether if it hadn't been for a group of women in the Ford factory in East London. Join us next week to hear their story. This is Rebel Women. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review. If you want to get in touch, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. For show notes, reading lists and further stories about East London women, visit our website, eastlondonwomen.org.uk. Rebel Women is part of the Women Activists of East London Project, which has been developed by Share UK, a non-profit community group based in London. Special thanks to the Barry Emile and Norman Melbourne Trust for their support of today's episode.